0: This is Ron Orle. You're listening to the Activist Investment Today podcast. And I'm super excited today to be speaking with James Hu, partner in White Case's New York office, and he's counseled clients on M&A transaction, hostile takeovers, and activist situations. Over his career, James has advised on M&A deals with an aggregate value of over $100 billion, including Danaher's $21 billion acquisition of GE's biopharma business, and Baxalta, which received a $32 billion unsolicited bid from Shire and ultimately combined with it. James is currently an adjunct professor at Cornell Law School and Cornell Tech, and prior to Wedding case, James worked as a partner at Kirkland & Ellis. Thanks, James, for taking the time. Great to be here. Okay. So let's talk about, I guess, one of my favorite subjects, about the, I guess, the intersection between activist investors and deals. And I know that activists will will often launch campaigns with an M&A focus. And I believe they have M&A focus a lot of times, even if they don't reveal it privately or publicly. And so I guess I wanted to get a sense from you is why do we see so many of these kinds of deal-related activist campaigns? And you kind of divide up activist campaigns with a deal-related focus into three categories. So maybe start with that. What are the three categories? of uh, deal-related activist campaigns, and then why are we seeing so many of these?
1: Yeah, broadly speaking, there are three types of m and related campaigns. First, a sale of the entire company, and the targets here are usually mid or small cap companies whose stock price has most likely underperformed relative to the peer group. Second, a divestiture of the business division that the activist believes is not synergistic with the rest of the corporation's business lines, Mm -hmm. or an outright breakup of the corporation into two or more pure plays. And the targets here are usually larger companies that have more than one business line and sometimes have gone through a period of active M&A acquisitions. Mm -hmm. Thirdly and lastly, this is what I call opposition to a live deal. Mm-hmm. And this is either targeting the buyer for overpaying for the target, or frankly, just the lack of strategic fit, asking the question, why do you do the deal in the first instance without sort of getting to the valuation at all? Or it could be targeting the seller, the target company, or let's sort of selling the company on the cheap. And, and I think it's sort of, it's important to view why activists approach these targets with an M&A theme from the perspective that an activist investor is approaching this as an investment like any other financial investor. And the key is to maximize annualized return for the activist fund. Mm -hmm. So the push for a sale transaction for an underperforming stock, if successful, will likely garner immediate short-term return for the activist investor due to the control premium which is reflected usually as a higher transaction multiple relative to just ordinary course trading multiple of a public company. Similarly, divesting non-core businesses can generate or create pure play public companies that also trade at a higher valuation. Mm-hmm. And this is in contrast with what I call operation-oriented campaigns, right? Advocating for certain operational change, which can take longer time to realize and are subject to execution risks right during such a long executory period. No, that's interesting.
0: And then just to narrow in on the, the break up the live MA campaign type story. I feel like there's kind of two categories of this, right? Where sometimes they just want that deal broken up and they don't care. There's no way to kind of appease the activist. They just are very upset about the deal. They think the target should remain independent. And then sometimes though they would be satisfied with the the buyer paying a higher price, right? Or those are, I guess, the two different categories of live MA campaigns?
1: Yes, exactly. And on the on the seller side or target side, right, it's now well known as bumpy charge. And of course, hedge fund, right, can always get into the stock of a target company and pursue what I call appraisal proceeding, which is available in most states, most famous in Delaware. But that is a very time-consuming and costly exercise. So advocating for a higher price without going through a right, kind of a legal proceeding and potentially extract some concession from the buyer, right, to bump the price even by a little bit. That bump will likely be immediately reflected to a degree in the target company's trading price with some discount, right, always associated with the probability of a deal whether to close or not. Activists can immediately cash out and again, the question for them is sort of: is that a good annualized return right? and a good sort of bump within a short period of time generates superior annualized return? And that sort of is the logic for targeting some of the target companies here.
0: Yeah, no, that's very interesting. So, okay, I want to kind of talk about a subset of this kind of M and A activism ca- activist campaigns, and we often see activists launch their efforts. Companies that have made major acquisitions that don't require a shelter vote. I think what we were talking about a few minutes ago are ones where there obviously is a shareholder vote, and they can kind of agitate to get the bidder to pay more, or they could, uh, you know, drive convince other shareholders not to vote, favor the deal so the deal doesn't happen because shareholders don't support it. But there's a lot of these kind of really big deals, even transformational acquisitions I've seen in a couple of cases where there's no vote. And recently, saw this activist Encore Capital where Jim Chadwick, the activist formerly of Relational, complained about logistics company Ford Air's acquisition of Omni, another logistics company, and it didn't require a shoulder vote. And the the activist had said that if there had been a shoulder vote, then he was convinced that shareholders would have voted down the deal. And of course, this is one is now in Delaware, with Ford as appears to be trying to pull itself out of the deal. And in Delaware court, I mean, and Omni, the, the target, is seeking to compel Forward Air to close the deal. But putting that aside, James, can you tell me, I guess, in what circumstances can a buyer avoid having to have a shareholder vote on a big acquisition? And then maybe talk a little bit about unintended consequences of these kind of deals without a shareholder vote.
1: A shareholder vote on the buyer side is usually required when the buyer is using stock as consideration to acquire the target company and that's due to maybe two primary legal regimes. And the first is the stock exchange rule. With some variation, the NYSE and NASDAQ both require shareholder approval when a company issues 20% or more of stock as merger consideration. And additionally, and you run into this occasionally, if the charter of the buyer does not provide enough headroom for future stock issuance, the buyer needs to amend the charter. And of course, that amendment itself requires a shareholder vote as well. Yeah. So to avoid a shareholder vote, frankly, the buyer just needs to shift more toward using cash consideration and minimize right, kind of the stock consideration in order to avoid right, tripping that 20% stock exchange rule on equity issuance or right, amending its charter. In making this decision though, The buyer should always balance the benefit of providing kind of a more competitive and therefore less contingent bid, balancing that against sort of the financial cost of incurring debt or debt-like financing sources. Mm -hmm. So that is the way is to really shift to the cash. In terms of the kind of the unintended consequences, while removing buyer-shareholder vote enhances closing certainty. That act alone could be used as a basis by an activist investor to oppose the deal. Mm -hmm. And the argument can range from the fact that, oh, the debt financing you are using is on very burdensome terms, right? It's not a efficient financing to kind of in your example, due to some quirks in state law or deal structure the deal actually there's an arguable basis that a shareholder vote is, in fact, required. And additionally, and I think people sometimes don't think along those lines, if the buyer's usual nomination window for the annual shareholder meeting somehow overlap with a deal's execution timeline, the buyer's directors could be exposed, right, to proxy contest with an objection to this deal as sort of being used immediately as a reason why, right, the activist is launching this campaign. So there's some interaction between an extraordinary transaction and the usual annual meeting timeline on the buyer side.
0: That is really interesting. <laughs> so you should definitely look at the nomination window and if it overlaps with the deals with no shelter votes, closing timeline, I guess. That's an important thing to look at. But so James, tell me, how would you advise a company? I feel like we've seen several examples, you and know, I've chatted about this before, of situations where a company is able to close a blockbuster deal, even with an activist showing up. They're able to get that deal closed. You know, there's nothing the activist can do. I guess if there's no nomination, direct, they can't do a director contest in the midst of it if they're not able to because of the nomination deadline. Or, you know, the activist maybe is able to get a director on the board down the road. But that deal, uh, they're able to close the deal. So maybe it's it's worth it. Structure the deal if financing is there for it. Without a shoulder vote, because even if there's a lot of public agitation from some disgruntled investors, you can get the deal closed. Is that is that a suggested strategy?
1: Yeah, I'd say the answer is generally yes. But both the buyer and the target would want to avoid a buyer-side shareholder vote as possible. Mm -hmm. And frankly, having a shareholder vote required on the buyer side will provide a real opportunity for the activist to legally block a deal right, by mobilizing a failure of the buyer-shareholder vote. Mm -hmm. That would give an activist more leverage. And this is in contrast to a situation where there's no buyer walk-away right based on its own shareholder vote. That fact alone can sometimes deter activists from showing up because think about it, even if the activist does not like the deal, what it can do? The buyer is bound to close and if it doesn't the buyer will likely be liable for a significant amount of damages to the target company which will be a financial penalty to the activist shareholders own investment in the buyer stock and and i kind of go back to my earlier thing that an activist is a financially oriented investor and his campaign is generally aimed at reaping a financial benefit so put one-on-one together you would say okay in this scenario if you were the activist, you may not want to oppose the deal because that would actually cause severe financial penalty on the buyer, given the deal is fully
0: locked up. That's fascinating. That's really interesting stuff. So, okay, we don't have a lot of time. So I wanted to shift to another subject that I've been spending a lot of time on lately, and look a little bit on the regulatory topic, because there's a lot of action in the, at the Securities and Exchange Commission related to activist investors. And recently, we saw the SEC adopt what I viewed as a watered down rules based on, you know, comparing the original SEC proposal and what was adopted for 13D reports. Now, the toughest part, of, in my view, of the new rules will require that activist investors disclose their positions within five business days of crossing a 5% ownership threshold versus what was previously 10 calendar day window to disclose their position after crossing a 5% ownership stake. And, you know, as a reporter and lots of people in the industry, we often are kind of constantly looking at these 13 Ds and trying to identify this item four section to see where they often put information about what they want to see happen at the company. They clearly have, they have some activist intention of the company. What impact, James, do you think will this change have? I mean, it wasn't the two days that a lot of the advisory world for companies targeted by activists wanted it. But. It's definitely shorter than 10 calendar days, although if you have the weekend because it's business days, you might be able to make a little bit longer than five business days. But what impact will this have?
1: Yeah, so I look at this in in two worlds. In the first world, especially for large cap companies, the activist investors don't even own stock, right, kind of near 5% because attaining that level of ownership would not be kind of financially feasible. So this change wouldn't impact right, those scenarios where like, the activist just doesn't even get to the 5% and doesn't—it's not subject to the 13D regime. For the activists who do cross over 5%, the difference between 10 calendar days, which is really around seven business days, and five business days are probably not that huge, but it does narrow the window in which an activist can accumulate target company shares at the unaffected and presumably cheaper stock price. So in this second world, there could be some incremental cost involved for an activist to build a large enough position, or they may decide they're just it's not, it's not possible to build that larger position and therefore they will just settle with a smaller position in the company.
0: I mean, you think it will discourage some activists from launching campaigns or you think that ultimately they'll be able to accumulate the positions that they need? to uh, justify the cost of the activist campaign?
1: No, I don't, I don't think it sort of moves the needle by that much. I think it is really kind of presumably driving up some cost. The activist is forced to scoop up shares within five business days mm-hmm. instead of spreading it out, I guess, over seven business days. Again, it, it's mm-hmm. probably all very marginal at the end of the day. You shouldn't really move the needle on like decision to whether to launch a campaign or not.
0: Okay, there's another provision in the rule that I was surprised. I spoke to some lawyers who were there pretty upset about, it, and I' still not 100 percent clear why. So amended 13 Ds, which are kind of like, you know, after you cross the five percent, when you buy or sell more than one percent or you cross below back below the five percent threshold, you have to disclose what are known as amended 13 Ds. In the previous rule, those were supposed to be filed promptly, which is rather vague, but now they need to be filed by in two business days. So the SEC set a very specific. Time frame: two business days of you know buying or selling more than one percent. You have to file the amended 13D disclosing those additional positions or that those sales of of a position. And I spoke to some advisors to activists, and they said, "Oh, we've been always filing these in two business days, anyways, so this is not going to affect us a lot." But the, this one advisor to companies targeted by activists felt like it should have been shorter. I don't know. What do you think about all that?
1: Yeah, I think if you are the filer of 13D, right, you 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 generally don't wake up one day and decide, okay, today is the day I increase the holding by one percent. There should be like a lead time to it, and right, frankly, time to prepare for filing. So that's probably explains why you're not hearing a lot of excitement on the activist side, advisors on the company side, of course, right. The sooner any reports is filed, is better, but that problem is to a degree ameliorated by a robust stock watch program with a sophisticated and a proxy advisor who, who historically, right, who, who has good data and information, and sort of a even a shorter time frame, like who is in your stock, whether or not, right, that sort of shareholder is subject to any 13D filing or an amendment of 13D.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely important with large derivatives accumulations by activists, and I know that there's another SEC rule on derivatives disclosure, but that. I think it's subject for another conversation. I guess I wanted to get a sense of another subject that I've been following a lot lately is this idea of SPACtivism, which is kind of a fancy term that combining activism and SPACs. And there was a lot of expectation that we'd see a lot of activism at SPACs that recently de companies that aren't performing well in the market. There are a lot of de companies that aren't performing well in the market, but we really aren't seeing a lot of activism at any of them. I, you know, there's a few prominent examples where we are seeing some activism, Canoe Health and Desktop Metal. But for the most part, I haven't seen much activism. And I wanted to see if you had any thoughts on why that is and, you know, whether we might see more SPACtivism in the months to come.
1: Yeah, so this is an interesting kind of phenomenon where perhaps lack thereof. I think the lack of activism for the newly back companies may be attributed to two reasons. First, at least for a period of time, newly de back companies can have significant founder control, either due to the ownership of the founders themselves or legacy shareholder base who continues to be loyal to the management team. And if that's the fact pattern, then that is not a type of target companies that would be palatable to an activist. Mm -hmm. And the second reason would be to the extent that the reason for poor stock price performance of these companies is not really an operational issue or some poor decision making. And there's also no immediate M&A opportunity available for, right, for this type of companies. Rather, the reason for the stock price plunge was due to optimistic financial projection and rich valuation during the D-SPAC phase then that is just a historical issue on valuation. And there's frankly nothing for an activist to agitate or fix. There's nothing the activist can do to fix that issue. It's just a right sizing of the valuation. So I think for a combination of these two reasons, we're not seeing too many activism in the newly despected companies.
0: That's an interesting point that you don't see a lot of like large institutional investors owning shares in a lot of recently de companies and I've been following quite closely you know the uh, 13 the NPX data which discloses how the big index funds vote on everything but really I care about the mostly are the proxy fights has come out and so I've kind of been looking at a lot of this data and I've seen situations where high profile activists are able to gain institutional investor support and I guess I wanted to get your sense of whether you think like the big three index funds, you know, including BlackRock and Vanguard, how prominent they'll be in, in activism in the future? And I know that we have these situations where they mostly support management in director contests that go the distance. Here's if you think that they will occasionally back activists, and particularly if the uh, two big proxy advisors, Institutional Shareholder Services and Glass Lewis, recommends for one or more of the activists. I guess I'm trying to get a sense of whether you think there's a correlation between ISS and Glass Lewis recommendations and how the big index funds vote on on director contests?
1: Yeah. So I think there could definitely be a level of correlation, but I think that that's correlation and not causation. And I think that's a very important distinction. As far as I understand, those very large institutional investors have their own kind of voting guidelines, which they apply independently. They would, of course, perhaps take a look at the ISS or Glass-Lewis recommendation, but that would just be a data point. But I think why you're seeing some level of correlation right between kind of the ISS recommendation and the ultimate voting result of the institutional investors, many instances or some instances can probably be explained by the fact that at a high level, if the system is running the way it is intended, it is all geared toward Representing the best interest of the shareholders, so it may be manifested differently. They have different voting principles, guidelines at a high level, right? It may just be kind of a different path to the same ultimate objective, and and therefore, I think the correlation could be explained on that basis.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting because you know you hear a lot of uh, you know cons- uh, conservatives in Capitol Hill complain that you know the iss and Glass is wield too much power, and you could see this connection between the way that they recommend and the way these large institutions like the big index funds vote. But I always wonder, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? You know, the ISS and Glass-Lewis, they, their clients are these big institutional investors, and they kind of, off, you know, they will develop policies that the institutions want. So there could be a, a connection between, you know, how those policies, the, the ISS and Glass-Lewis policies and the way those big institutions vote. So- very interesting stuff. Okay, I had to have more questions, but we are out of time. This has been Ron Orle, and you've been listening to the Activist Investment Today podcast with James Hu, a partner in White & Case's New York office. Thank you, James, for taking the time.
1: Thank you for having me.